Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A terrifying presence in the northeastern woodlands. This fearsome creature is most often seen in winter, targeting solo travelers who've lost contact with their groups. The hunger and isolation of the Canadian cold season drives this giant beast with jagged teeth to consume human flesh. Are the forests truly being stalked by otherworldly creatures? Are the real monsters actually just our fellow humans? Or is the truth somewhere in between? This week's episode is The Wendigo. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. Well, thank you to our Getting Into It subscribers on Patreon for voting on this topic. This was this month's topic they got to vote on. It was this, Flatwoods Monsters, Kraken, and Wendigo won out. So here you are. Yes, and thanks to everybody who has submitted Wendigo as a uh, topic suggestion for a long time. One that we've been meaning to cover. And we're like, it's time for a cryptid. And Mm -hmm. people have spoken. It is time to cover the Wendigo. I didn't know much about this whenever we started, but Paris got very stoked when I told him because he loves the PBS show Monstrum with Dr. Emily Zarka. And he was like, Dr. Emily Zarka has a thing on. I was like, you should only get your cryptid news from me, but (laughs) that's fine. No, I'm kidding. I love her and I love Monstrum. It's like bite size. It's like eight minutes of like stuff you need to know. And there's just so much to this. It's uh, we've really gotten to dig into all the folklore and centuries of information. Heads up. Even though this is a folklore, cryptid, whatever, there's talks of cannibalism. So I know with our Chris Reagan episodes, that was very bothersome for a lot of people, as it should be. It was very bothersome for us. But if even the thought of it gives you uh, the heebie-jeebies, maybe this one isn't for you. Just want to say that up top. Also, I want to say up top, there is a lot of words in this that I am going to do my very best to say the way that the indigenous people intend for them to be said. And I hope that I don't botch them, but I just want to say I've been practicing, but please be kind. Yes, right. We've been looking at nativelanguages.org. I love that there's resources now that are run by people who it is their culture and can share it and can say, yes, share our culture, but here's how to do it the right way. Right. So shout out to those organizations for for that. But yeah, this is, uh, since it is folklore it, and uh, a, well, a widely believed part of folklore it has also crept into reality so like like you said a minute ago there are some real life instances of mm-hmm. flesh eating so a heads up for the rest of this episode but i love getting into the folklore and then also how it a culture collides with the law i say that in quotes quote unquote as it this new law emerges i'm excited about all the things we're going to talk about this episode well i'm christy i'm heather and let's get into it The Wendigo is a creature rooted in the folklore of the Algonquian language speakers of North America, including the Ojibwe, the Salto, the Cree, the Nascapi, and the Innu. The legend around the Wendigo developed in a triangular region stretching from the Atlantic coast to the east, the Rocky Mountains to the west, and the Arctic Ocean to the north. Indigenous people who made their home in these northeastern woodlands often faced harsh winters, the time of year the Wendigo was spotted. Since the Wendigo developed largely through oral tradition, there are variations in the origin of the legend. Some believe that a Wendigo forms when a human being resorts to the unthinkable, cannibalism. This was often the last resort for indigenous people who became stranded and desperate due to the severe cold weather. Other sins could also elicit the same possession, including extreme greed, 
gluttony and excess, according to Legends of America. But yeah, it was, since it's such a huge area between the Arctic Ocean at the top, the Atlantic Ocean to the east, and then the Rocky Mountains to the west, it's so many different tribes, so many different groups, so many different languages and dialects. There's 37 different ways to spell and say Wendigo, this sort of same concept. So then in our research, it's been interesting to see as it expands across the groups, the personification each different group assigns to it, you know, whether it's ice monster or a human or whatever, and then what the kind of spiritual interpretation that aligns with that is it's been fascinating yeah it's like with anything kind of religion uh lore of anything like you can have a huge swath of area that all kind of believe and practice the same thing but each different community is going to have their own twist on it or spin on it Mm -hmm. especially in an oral tradition where it's not necessarily getting documented of like Mm -hmm. this is the right version of it Anthropologist Ruth Landis documented that the Ojibwe believe that a person can become a Wendigo through one of three influences. The first may be a visitation by a Wendigo spirit in a dream. Another cause could be starvation so desperate it forces a person to try cannibalism. A third way is the sorcery practices of an enemy. Roughly translated to the evil spirit that devours mankind. The Wendigo is a decidedly horrid creature. A towering 15 feet tall, the Wendigo has been described as having red eyes, sharp fangs, a putrid shade of yellow, and a devilishly long tongue. The Wendigo appears gaunt and emaciated, his hunger never fully satisfied. Some legends say the beast is a master of mimicry, often luring unsuspecting victims deep into the woods to feast upon their flesh. And this description of these huge teeth being 15 foot tall. And if the eyes aren't red, then sometimes they're described as like black holes. So mm-hmm. I don't care if it's glowing red or a black abyss. If you see that come around a tree at you, nah. Of all the cryptids we've covered or that I'm familiar with, this one is maybe the one that creeps me out the most looks wise. Oh, it's the most evil. Yeah. The, as, yeah. The tearing of the flesh limb by limb, that tends to push somebody to the next category of horror as far as just disturbing violence. Yeah. Anything that has animalistic mannerisms and behavior and maybe some features, but also looks human-like too, Mm -hmm. those are the ones that get me because I don't think I could win in a fight against them now if a giant humanoid there's something about it because you know Mm -hmm. the you can know how it moves like a person you're like i can't fight a 15 foot tall anything no much less a person who could claw and chew especially when it's trying to rip me limb from limb and eat my flesh yeah the algonquian people described the wendigo as a giant with a heart of ice sometimes it is thought to be entirely made up of ice Its body is skeletal and deformed, with missing lips and toes. The Ojibwe also noted the monster's ghastly mouth. It was a large creature, as tall as a tree, with a lipless mouth and jagged teeth. Its breath was a strange hiss, its footprints full of blood, and it ate any man, woman, or child who ventured into its territory. And those were the lucky ones. Sometimes, the Wendigo chose to possess a person instead— And then the luckless individual became a Wendigo himself, hunting down those he had once loved and feasting upon their flesh. Sounds delightful. Yeah, that's even worse, too, when you're like, oh, that used to be somebody. That used to be a person. That used to be Carl, and now he's trying to eat all of our family. Right, we knew exactly who that was. And now a lipless mouth with jagged teeth just Mm. ready to eat. And again, it's just this visual of like, my, I'm an eating machine, a consumption, not ever satiated, just chomping machine. And they say the lips are missing because it eats them because it's always hungry and trying to eat human flesh. So it's essentially like eating its own lips yeah. to satisfy that craving. I guess it's it's like the equivalent of biting your nails for the Wendigo. Right. It's or just a like nervous habit. It's just you or yeah, or you're just so hungry and so like I just ate it off. I didn't even notice. It's mm-hmm. gone. The lips are gone. But that I, it's just the idea of being so hungry that you would eat your own lips. Ugh. Yeah. Man. They remind me of White Walkers, but 
more, uh, even more scary. Because the White Walker also like ice. You mm-hmm. didn't ever watch Game of Thrones, did you? Um, I only watched the first maybe two seasons, I think. Well, you would have been introduced to the White yeah, Walker. Yeah, I feel like so. I remember that concept of like, it. yeah, that sounds familiar, of like out in the desolate, cold, wintriness, like out there hunting, hungry, like it needs something to eat and you're what it comes across. Mm-hmm. No. A Cree woman named Maggie Wilson, living in Emo, Ontario, told Ruth Landis that the beast was... The personification of death or insanity from starvation, and who has an insatiable desire to satisfy his hunger by eating human beings. To Wilson's tribe, the Wendigo was visualized as a giant ice skeleton. Others have described it as having fur, similar to Bigfoot or a werewolf. Still, others say the monster's skin is a sickly shade of ashen gray, its skin being pulled taut across its bony body. Well, I got this... um wendigo children's book out of the youth section at the dallas public library and it has amazing illustrations it's written by a native american author and it's illustrated by a native american illustrator and this one it is a made out of stone but it has a lot of the same it's still giant and still kind of skeletal made of stone but in the end they discover if you burn the stone it will break the stone apart And then that destroyed the Wendigo, but then the ash began to sting and bite those around once they had burned the stone and they heard the whisper of the Wendigo's voice on the wind saying, I will consume humans forever. And in this tribe, they determined that's where mosquitoes came from, that the burnt ash of the Wendigo went on to become mosquitoes. And that's why we have them to this day is they're little tiny ashen versions that eat our flesh Oh, yeah. this was in the children's section. Oh, yeah. It's a folklore book in the children's section. <laughs> Shout out to the Dallas Public Library and the children's librarian who goes, I go, I'm looking for a Wendigo book. And she goes, oh, is it, are you teaching your students? What grade do you teach? And I was like, I have a podcast. But thank you very much. <laughs> I would what grade like do I teach? <laughs> First through whatever, man. 99. I'm like, zero through 99. <laughs> you're welcome. But uh, I was interested in it because I wanted to see how it is portrayed they they leave out the cannibalism part i will say in this version of the well a mosquito what is a mosquito if not just a That's tiny true. little cannibal exactly no it was fascinating to show and the beautiful illustrations i thought man that was such a pristine area to live in before it was all destroyed by others but the illustrations are just gorgeous i'll post pictures in our social media yeah i have a lot of books too of some actually written towards children that I guess the window goes in, but then some more adult ones too. And it is very interesting. The artist interpretation, especially depending on perhaps what region you were from as to what it looked like. But I'll tell mm-hmm. you what, no matter where you were from, they weren't, they weren't pretty. No, and it's nothing you want to encounter at all Mm-mm. whatsoever. And if the idea is, hey, you need to stay in in the winter because if you go out in the winter, you'll be eaten by a Wendigo, you don't have to tell me twice. Nope. I don't like being cold. I don't like dealing with snow and ice. Mm-mm. So you don't even have to tell me about a Wendigo. I'm good. If somebody's like, you got to stay in this cave where the fire is for the next two months, done and done. I would love to tend it for everyone. That's my role. <laughs> I'm happy, happy to do it. According to nativelanguages.org, the Chippewa people view the huge ice-covered monsters with both fear and sadness, knowing that they have morphed from a once-human member of their tribe into an unrecognizable beast. Inside the creature, the human remains, frozen inside the Wendigo's chest. And you see this in some of the artwork depicted, which we'll also put on social media, like a painting of a Wendigo. It'll have a circle in its you know, torso region with like little smaller outlines that are clearly the soles of the bodies that mm-hmm. it's consumed. To successfully kill a Wendigo, a shaman is needed, according to some legends. To subdue the beast, a dagger or bullet made of silver, steel, or iron must be used. However, other legends believe the one true way to destroy a Wendigo is to cut out its heart and burn or melt it in a fire. If there is still help for the possessed soul of the Wendigo's victim, pouring hot bear fat down the afflicted person's throat can help melt the icy spirit of the Wendigo within them, releasing the victim from the Wendigo's hold. Which that would make sense if it's a disease of needing sustenance or needing to be full with something, avoiding human flesh and finding a bear alternative that 
makes sense spiritually as far as that's going to satiate that hunger, that drive. Yes. And the hotness, warming it up first, you know, is going to melt whatever is going on within you. I don't, I mean, I guess pouring hot bear fat down my throat would be better than being consumed by a Wendigo. So if I was in that position, I'm like, pour it down. Get yeah, the bear, every time. pour Mine it down. Take it every time. Well, and the as far as subduing it with not just a bullet, but then some comment that if you don't, if you just shoot it, then you also have to dismember it. Otherwise, it will come back. That came into play into some real life encounters with alleged Wendigos where it was like, you can't just leave it that way. We have to double kill it, basically, because the potential for it to come back. Well, and like it said, even if you burn it, the ashes are then flittering about and can turn into my nemesis, yes, the mosquito. Sounds like this is a centuries-long battle between man and mosquito <laughs> that we ain't the first ones, for sure. No. <laughs> Early written accounts of the Wendigo can be traced back to the 1600s when fur trappers and traders from Europe arrived to the northeastern coast. They came with a desire for beaver pelts that helped build a relationship between their Europeans and the indigenous people. The new arrivals were warned of the cannibalistic monsters roaming the woods. The earliest written record of the Wendigo was a letter from a Jesuit priest, Paul Lejeune, in 1636. He gave that tribe's word for Wendigo and added parenthetically, A sort of a werewolf. When describing a woman's encounter with the Wendigo, accused of eating the flesh from a man in a neighboring tribe. An English fur trader, James Isham, wrote an account of his time with the Cree people near the Hudson Bay. His interpretation of the monster was just two words. The devil. While in northern Quebec, author Henry Yule Hind sat around a campfire with a member of the Montagnus tribe who told him that the Wendigos are giant cannibals, 20 and 30 feet high. And that they live on human flesh. Meanwhile, a description by Sir William Francis Butler from the Hudson Bay area referred instead to a creature slightly smaller. While out fishing, Butler's guide pointed to another Native American, shorter in stature, standing on a nearby shore. The guide warned Butler, He is a Wendigo, a man that is he a man that has eaten other men. And that was the first exposure to anyone outside of this kind of triangular region to the concept of Wendigo or this spirit that transforms people into wanting to eat human flesh. You know, you think it could just be me. I'm an average fur trader out here. And what if I'm afflicted and just trying to interpret the legends that they're hearing from the people that are now serving as their guides? And I've read some that it likened it kind of to the Salem witch trials and that if Mm -hmm. all of a sudden the description changes and it's like, well, they can also look just like regular people. Mm -hmm. Well, that now anybody can be targeted, whether you have been overcome with the Wendigo or not, it kind of becomes a, a a witch hunt or a Wendigo hunt where anybody can be accused. And that makes you a target for being murdered by your own tribe in order to, protect everyone from the person they think is the Wendigo. That's a good point. And if it's the descriptors were could shift, then it becomes dangerous whenever you have these Europeans writing down, oh, it is this way. And that might not that's that might be that way in the area that you're at, but you can't say definitively this is what a Wendigo is, period, because it just shifts and changes so much. Mm-hmm. Sinisterhood will be right back. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, little. 
Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The brief mentions in European letters and accounts of travels to the Americas were enough to spark the interest of fiction writers. In 1910, the Wendigo was the subject of a supernatural fiction story by Algernon Blackwood that made its way onto CBC Radio. Five men, stranded in the woods, are driven mad by nature in isolation when one of them tells his version of the legend. There is no mention of cannibalism in Blackwood's account. Instead, the story centers around a spirit that calls to its victims by name, luring them from their tents and forcing them to run after the spirit so fast that their feet are burned off from the friction and replaced by the feet of the Wendigo. Unfortunately, this misrepresentation was wildly popular and spawned many imitations. According to author John Robert Colombo, the self-styled master gatherer of Canadian lore. Well, yeah, it's like the thought, the idea of what the Wendigo might be gets out, and then early 1900s, it's like a new source of fiction for uh, writers-blocked British authors who are like, oh, <laughs> hmm, I need a new monster. Oh, Wendigo, I'll just use this and make up whatever I want about it, right? and now it's mine, and now I've invented a creature. But that's kind of the, man, a lot of the newspaper searches I found were very unsettling depictions, although absolutely for their time, way prevalent. But with the benefit of hindsight, we know are extremely offensive, mocking, but it was almost used in Saturday morning cartoons. It would be a white presenting trapper trader in like a plaid shirt with a fur hat and then a caricature, like an ethnic cultural stereotype caricature speaking in what would be a mocking fashion, but saying like, oh, beware, there's a Wendigo and used kind of as this boogeyman sort of specter in kind of Saturday morning cartoons when Mm -hmm. it had a much longer, much more in-depth description behind it. And it's not something to be laughed at for our amusement. This is a real creature to so many that just happen to be of a different culture Mm -hmm. than the, you know, white European man. And like so many other times, they just take that and turn it into a funny little uh, thing to be mocked at when there's history that is behind this. It's not just some story that people made up around a campfire. It's special to the indigenous people and for the white man to then take it and make it their own thing. And then, you know, it just becomes kind of something to laugh about is very disrespectful and insulting. Yeah, it's extremely cringy. Yeah, for this guy in 1910 to be like, oh, I've made up a very thoughtful story. It's like, bitch, you still have that. (laughs) Trying to act like you made that up. The true nature of the Wendigo has been somewhat lost in its portrayal in mainstream media. An early supernatural story published in 1933 depicted the Wendigo as a thing that walked on the wind, floating through the sky with webbed feet and glowing eyes, more like something from an H.P. Lovecraft story than folklore. And you do kind of find in the old stories that it was a throwaway line for these authors to say, well, based on an old Indian legend, and then they would just insert whatever they wanted to insert. But it gives it this false sense of credence from a storyteller perspective. And from an audience perspective, you're like immediately lured in going, oh, there's, oh, it's like old and ancient when it's just like, oh, he took the word and made up something. Right. I think a lot of times people take liberty when something is presented as legend that well, this is fake anyway, so I can just say whatever I want about it. That's not how those things work. It's, uh, it might have been made up by someone else, but that doesn't mean that you now get the, yeah, you can just take it and run with it. No, that the, (laughs) you know, the door's open for anybody to be like, well, it was made up so we can all just make up whatever we want. You still have to honor the original story. <laughs> it's one thing if it's the squonk and some guy who's like, I like weird shit in the woods. I'm going to make up a squonk. That's fine. And we love the squonk and the squonk is real. But in this case, the <laughs> Wendigo is also real. And it's like real in a different sense, in an honored sense and something to be like honored and feared and be like, oh, I'm going to give it six arms in my story. Mm hmm. Horror icon Stephen King used the Wendigo as inspiration for his 1983 novel Pet Cemetery. Protagonist Lewis Creed is told that sacred land near his home can resurrect the dead. That land, it turns out, is Micmac burial ground that has been cursed by a Wendigo. 
the 1989 film adaptation doesn't make mention of this connection, though the 2019 remake does. Television shows like Supernatural, Charmed, and even My Little Pony have included the Wendigo in episodes, with some staying closer to the legend than others. And that's even what the librarian at the Dallas Public Library said, like, oh, like Supernatural with the Wendigo in it. And I looked it up, and it's, I mean, it seems like they, the writers of Supernatural, definitely read the background on things before they include them in the series, which I think makes them more interesting and, like, uh, it's scarier almost, because it is staying closer to, like, what is real. Mm-hmm. My Little Pony. <laughs> They they went for it. If you go to mylittlepony.fandom.com, mm-hmm. it says Wendigos are a race of ghostly horse-like creatures that first appear in the season two episode, Hearth's Warming Eve. They are winter spirits that feed off of the fighting and hatred between others and create blizzards and freezing weather. Well, it's interesting that it's feeding off of something which is close to the closer to the legend as far as be feeding off of negative emotions like greed and isolation and selfishness. That's a negative emotion. On and the- <laughs> My Little Pony is notorious for, like most children's shows, coming from a place of um, love and kindness and teaching a lesson throughout the episode. So if in this, the Wendigos feed off of fighting, then I'm sure the lesson is, well, if we don't fight, then there's nothing for the Wendigo to eat, and therefore they can't survive. That's true. Maybe they are taking an otherwise uh, a legend that's similar and using it to teach kids a lesson. And the kids maybe go Google what a Wendigo is and learn more and find an episode of Sinister. <laughs> <laughs> it says later in the episode, the Wendigos appear again when a conflict escalates between Princess Platinum, Commander Hurricane, and Chancellor Puddinghead. Well, there Which, you go. Chancellor if you Puddinghead. needed a reason to watch Chancellor Puddinghead is all you need to know. That is my new name when I check into hotels is Chancellor <laughs> Puddinghead. Uh, they're like, can we have an ID for that? Yes, you can. I've had one made. <laughs> In 2002, the film Wendigo was released. Directed by Larry Fessenden, one super reviewer on Rotten Tomatoes, summed it up as, an interesting story about a family that's been spending a few days in a cabin, but realized some bloke's family live there and he's being a bit of a dick about it. A suspense film mixed with psychological terror. The film depicts the Wendigo as a deer-like monster. After this film, many more popular depictions of the Wendigo included antlers, despite no connection to deer in the original myth. The only animal associated with the Wendigo in the original Native American legend was the owl, according to Dr. Emily Zarka. The word Wendigo could translate to either owl or cannibal, depending on the dialect. Well, those are two different words, but sometimes it's just said a little bit differently and it can mean a totally different thing. Yeah, and I think the two, it was maybe two or three letters off. And especially if it's an oral language versus a written language, Mm -hmm. it might just be you might have heard it. But also, if you think about something that is alone in the woods, up in the tree with glowing eyes, an, an owl might be uh, the inspiration or at least a, an idea for some of the elements to it. But it is interesting when you have a movie that this was a smaller movie that kind of took off that people yeah, mixed reviews. <laughs> I just like that the <laughs> description was like, I don't know, they found somebody lived there. He's being kind of a dick about He's it. Kind of being a bit of a dick about it. He's <laughs> eating everybody. He's like, He's just not vibing with everyone. <laughs> Everyone's just trying to have like a fun cabin trip. And he's just going around. I don't eating the kids, quite frankly. We don't like that. If you if all it takes to be a super reviewer on Rotten Tomatoes is like one or two lines about movies, I'll go on there today <laughs> and I'll write two lines about every movie I've ever seen. Sucked. Hated it. Dumb. Couldn't understand be it. A super reviewer before the day's end. In no time. But you see though, like when you how this would create, I won't say an issue, but Larry Fessenden is a director and he's got an eye toward visual cinema as a director. And you're not like, I'm not an anthropologist. Like, I want it to look scary on screen. And then you just, what's scarier and make something look even taller to have these kind of antlers sticking out. But then from there, people are like, oh, Wendigo, like the Larry Fessenden movie. I'm going to give it antlers. The antlers, while not canon, are scary. And I think that about... Oh, like you see those old timey pictures of monsters and it, it it's like it is like a giant deer or something with antlers. It's very demonic looking yeah. associated kind of with the occult. So all of that is just 
eerie. So I get it. You want to add something to it, but I think you have a responsibility as a content creator, especially, you know, a director that's making a film that's going to be seen by, I don't know, hundreds, at least thousands, probably thousands, maybe tens of thousands. Yeah, certainly. (laughs) But to, you know, and I haven't seen it. So maybe at the beginning it does say creative liberties have been taken here or something, but probably not. But I think, you know, if you're going to completely change a cultural thing that has already been established, you got to acknowledge that it's not canon. Right. I would just at least like just make your own thing up. Like I, that's what I understand right? is I would say on its own, it's a terrifying flesh eating monster anyway. And if you want to add stuff to it, just make your own creature and just give it a fake name and have it be all made up. That's where I kind of get a little bit more like, oh, that takes me out of the story. Cause I'm like, you need, you need, did you Google this? Like, what the fuck? They Googled enough of it to be like, oh, this is a good idea. And now I don't have to come up with all of it, but I'm going to put my little tweaks on it to make it scarier. Right. Sinisterhood will be right back. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. After the release of the film, Fessenden edited a collection of essays on the development of the Wendigo myth, including some criticism of his portrayal. In an interview with Roger Ebert, Fessenden explained his fascination with the creature. What I find intriguing about that story is how it can be applied to expansionism, taking over the land and also taking over other people. To me, Wendigo mythology has great resonance, whether it's a cannibal story or a much broader comment on Western culture destroying Native people and the environment, which is where we are now. Global warming is the final frontier of Wendigoism. It's interesting because this kind of term, going Wendigo, has now formed to explain just that, like the consumption of something that isn't yours. Yes, greed, gluttony taking land that isn't yours, uh, corporations taking over something that isn't theirs. So I do appreciate that the idea, the larger idea behind the myth being created in the first place is kind of reaching new areas where Mm -hmm. we obviously need to be addressed and have a ton of problems. So it's like kind of a new way of educating people about stuff like that maybe in a way that resonates with them more i don't know that's probably too optimistic and i'm not (laughs) even an optimistic person (laughs) i was like no i love how this is very optimistic no but i agree like because if you look at you know the the adaptation in the early 1900s with you know blackwood on the radio and it's just kind of like this spooky story about a creepy monster that just you know, whatever is chasing you through the woods, eh, whatever. It doesn't really contribute anything. But what Fessenden, it sounded like what his intent was. And I think kind of his follow up to the film with this essay collection, because they weren't all nice essays of like every depiction's great. It's like some people mess it up and just add their own stuff. And I'm like, a brave person to go ahead and go, you know what? Fair enough. I'm going to put that in this collection. But to see it as this story is bigger than just a horror film. It really can be a metaphor and it's something that we need to watch out because that's exactly what the originators of the folklore wanted us to watch out for eating too much, being greedy and things like that. So I'm glad that he brought it together with that interview with Roger Ebert. And I think if Roger Ebert's interviewing him, probably like a couple hundred thousand people saw the movie. <laughs> we'll be True. Fair. True. It's I, I liken it to a lot of urban legends. They are developed to teach a lesson. Usually mm-hmm. it's to children, which we'll see this one was too. So like with any of these, they're it 
I think it all goes back to how can we protect ourselves Mm -hmm. and increase our chances of survival. And it often came in these terrifying stories to keep people from going and doing stuff they shouldn't. Mm, And what's more terrifying than our consumption setting the planet on fire? Very little is more terrifying than that. Sometimes the belief in the Wendigo makes its way into the courtroom. One famous Canadian case is Regina versus Machikekwanabe. The defendant, an Anishinaab man, was tried for the killing of a fellow tribe member who the defendant believed was possessed by the spirit of a Wendigo. The man was convicted of manslaughter, but on appeal, his attorney argued that the accused did not possess the required mental state to commit the crime. He was not intending to kill a man, but instead to defeat a Wendigo. The jury accepted that the accused believed it was a Wendigo. However, because that was not a valid excuse to manslaughter, the jury still convicted him for killing the victim. The conviction was upheld on appeal. And this case is one of the earliest, if not the precedent for the proposition that indigenous peoples are bound by colonial law, regardless of their religious and cultural beliefs. And so for the indigenous people in the area at the time, you think about it like you're literally have your own community and somebody Mm -hmm. on a horse comes up and just goes, well, that's illegal. And it's like, according to whom, according to us, we said so now. And Mm -hmm. you're like, well, we can work it out here. And they're like, no, come with us, put the shackles on. And for almost a hundred years after this, that's almost kind of the way that the law was. It was like, regardless of whatever your personal beliefs are, whatever your cultural heritage is, this is what we say the law is under this colonial system until the Canadian law caught up and said, we will take these things into account with a 1999 decision. But until then, it was just, we decided that that's the law come with us. It's horribly sad. Like you said, you you have your whole own community with your own beliefs, your own culture, your own way of governing things and, and handling things. And then somebody that has no knowledge of any of that and is also uh, trying to, you know, take your land from you and <laughs> drive you right. out comes in and is like, no, nah, we don't think so. And then you're just plucked out of it. It's so... It's so isolating and scary for that person who's already going through it because of what they were accused of. Perhaps if that trial was on tribal land where they know of these Mm -hmm. beliefs and everything, then it's handled differently. However, according to however they think it's best handled. Right. And I think Canada is the Gladue decision. I I apologize if I'm not saying that correctly because I, uh, but I was just reading that it's now courts should and are encouraged to, although, of course, there's groups calling for more to be done, but they take into consideration intergenerational trauma, the systemic bias, cultural competency around why what happened happened. Like, did they not get access to certain things that would have, you know, mental health resources or substance use resources that would have prevented the crime? And if not, why not? And if the reason why not is because of the systemic bias against the indigenous peoples, then the court should take that into consideration, just at least as a mitigating factor, which Mm -hmm. I think at least here it was, he was convicted of manslaughter because in reality, he did take the life of another, but in his culture, it was, it wasn't a human. It was a Wendigo, right? Yeah. Arguably the most infamous case of a person going Wendigo is the troubling tale of Swift Runner, a well-liked hunter and trapper of the Cree tribe living in Alberta during the winter of 1878 to 1879. When Swift Runner returned to town from his winter camp without his family, people started to question what had happened during those brutally cold months. Equally as suspicious was the strange way in which Swift Runner was behaving. Concerned for the other nine family members, the Northwest Mounted Police ventured out to Swift Runner's camp. What they found shocked them to their core gnawed on human bones littered throughout the camp. When questioned by authorities, Swift Runner explained that a Wendigo had visited his dreams, instructing him to kill and eat his entire family, including his mother, brother, wife, and his six children. Well, that is... Yeah. Uh, Worst case scenario, oh, I imagine. man. That's... Pretty much. Yeah, and... In hindsight and having the benefit of, you know, the knowledge we do, clearly he was struggling with some kind of mental health 
affliction of, of some sort. Mm-hmm. But again, if, you know, this comes to him in his, in his dreams and he's thinking he's doing something right. I mean, if this was to happen in today's day and age, you would probably be deemed incompetent to stand trial. Oh, You'd yeah. be, you know, just live out the rest of your days in a mental health institution, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But back then it was like, oh, well, this is nothing we've ever heard of. And immediately you're done. So you don't get yeah. any help you need. You are just removed from society permanently. Oh, yeah. And without any, like I said, consideration of, he clearly said that. He, he explained it when to go. And then the answer is, yeah, 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 whatever. Let's, it's time to execute him. Because it's 1878 and he's a part of an indigenous people, which like you said, they're like, could you just get off this land and let us have it? So mm-hmm. it makes it very convenient to just say like, we don't recognize any of that. And there are no mitigating circumstances, just mm-hmm. execute him. Historian at Carleton University, Lauren Markowitz, discovered a photograph of Swift Runner in shackles, taken around 1880. The photo was titled, Cree Cannibal Executed at Fort Saskatchewan. Tagged with a note reading, Additional information, ate his family. Indeed, Swift Runner was tried and found guilty for the murder of his family. For his crimes, he was publicly hanged. And see, they didn't even write his name on the photo of him. It's yeah. just his, what tribe he came from, and he's just known as a cannibal. So dehumanization, even despite what he did, was horrible. But even recognizing this is a story that we could go on and tell and learn from, just it was some cannibal. Yeah, publicly hanging people is, every time I think about that or we read something of that's how things were handled, I'm just... It baffles the mind that that was how we all decided back then that this is the best way to handle this for, I mean, because it is like, we want to shame them. So we're doing this in front of everybody, no matter mm-hmm. who it was, that was being hanged, witches, mm-hmm. indigenous people, criminals of any sort. It was this public shaming, but mm-hmm. also this kind of idea that, well, the public has a right to see this happen when if you really break it down of how traumatic it is for anyone to see <laughs> that happen. And then there are children in the crowd watching this. There are other criminals. There are people that are also afflicted with mental health problems. We, uh, except for, I guess when families and some media are allowed to witness executions. Now it's not something that the public is allowed to see. And it's just, mm-hmm. I don't know at what point that changed. I should look that up. But it, I'm just always shocked that back then people hung in the gallows in the town square for weeks, just rotting on a noose while everyone just went about their business and just, you know, did whatever. Yeah. Especially that it was government sanctioned for whatever legitimacy we want to assign to early days governments to be like we are the more civilized ones and we are the ones delving out the law anyway buy a ticket to the death we'll be having in the public square and it's just interesting to see perspective wise what is what was viewed as quote-unquote barbaric of like these you know the implication that this tribe is barbaric because of this belief system well we will drag you to the town square and hang you in front of everyone because we're civilized it's just with the benefit of hindsight, like you said, we have a different perspective, but even just at the time, the, I would say hypocrisy is pretty glaring. It's also shocking that this was considered kind of almost a form of entertainment, you know, like I'm sure. Yeah. You going down to the town square to watch Mm -hmm. such and such be hanged back then. I mean, there wasn't a ton to do. So anything I'm sure was like, Oh, well, yeah, that'll give us something to do. The innate human interest in death and the fascination of that and of the macabre and kind of this morbid curiosity has been with humans since the dawn of time. We've just kind of um, quelled that some. Now we don't go to the, you know, town square to watch someone be hanged. You got the dark web where you can see all this horrible shit. Back then it was like, Anybody could just see anything happen. And it's, oh, it was it's just wild to me. It was open to the public for sure. Yeah. And it's the, the inhumanity of someone's last moments being a spectacle is definitely stomach turning. Mm-hmm. Sinisterhood will be right back. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the late 1800s, Wendigo-related beliefs were often cited as the reasoning behind incidents of murder or cannibalism. Lauren's research highlighted a string of arrests by the Canadian authorities in alleged Wendigo cases. In one 1899 incident, two men were put on trial near Canada's Trout Lake for the murder of a man via an axe attack. They believed the victim was possessed by a Wendigo and that the axe was the only way to prevent the man from coming back and killing members of the tribe. And these early, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s was this draw of the Canadian government like, hey, we have to figure out how to get a handle on these tribes that are refusing to submit to our authority. And a very famous case was Jack Fiddler, who was known as the Wendigo Hunter. and kind of got this reputation. His dad was a shaman. He was a shaman. His brother, he was the chief. Uh, the Jack Fiddler was the chief. And he and his brother were kind of known as these people you went to if someone was about to turn into a Wendigo or had already turned into one or if there was a Wendigo in the area. And because he had this reputation and admitted, yes, I've destroyed Wendigos, aka I've killed members of the tribe, some of whom asked me to kill them, some of whom they're said they are attacking people, you need to put a stop to it. And he was this admitted Wendigo hunter that in 1910, the Northwestern, you know, the, what's now the Mounties, the early nascent version of the Mounties, were like, hmm, what's up here? Rode up a hill, found him. For some people in that specific tribe, they were the first white men they'd ever seen and said, you know, who's this Wendigo hunter we've heard about? And he said, it's me. And they took him and his brother in and arrested them and asked them, hey, did you kill these people? And they, like I said, yes, they were afflicted with this Wendigo disorder or whatever. But you see this idea of, oh, he has a reputation for it. We're going to go get him. Let's go up and hunt him. It was not complaints in the tribe of this man, Jack Fiddler, is killing members of our tribe and we need help. It is he, for our culture, is implementing what we've asked him to do. And mm -hmm. in some cases, people have asked for Please put me out of my misery. But then looking at it through a completely different cultural lens, it's like, get on the horse. Let's go up there and get him. Well, and if you get him and he's the one taking out people that are going to take out more members of the tribe, you eliminate him. All of a sudden the tribe turns on itself and you have a lot more people off of the land that you're trying to take. And also, yeah, that's the chief. So now you've further broken down the structure of the mm -hmm. tribe because you've taken one of their leaders, uh, a wise person that was giving out advice and saying, this is how we'll stay united and protect ourselves. Well, when he was in custody during a walk one day, Jack Fiddler left and went and completed suicide in a nearby tree because was just knew there was no hope for him, I'm assuming. Well, he was going to meet the same fate either yeah, way. Just, regardless. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because... I don't want it to come across that I'm saying what these people did was acceptable because of their cultural beliefs. I do think there is a lot to be said, though, that it's not up to a different culture to go in and say, oh, this is crazy. Y'all are crazy. What are you doing here? Like, clearly, we're the right ones. It's like they didn't go into your world and say, what are you doing here? The way you're handling this is all wrong. You need, oh, clearly this happened. Well, it must be a Wendigo. You know what I mean? They're not, yeah. the reverse isn't happening. And that's always been the white man's way. It's like this strong armed, I'm the dominant one. I'm the one in charge mm -hmm. here. I, I, I wonder what, if that were to never happen, like how that would be handled amongst their own tribe. Yeah. And if it says, I mean, he's the chief, like I said, it's not that the people in the tribe said, oh, please help us. We have this, sh the shaman slash chief is just mowing down people left, right and center. It was, we're good. Nobody was complaining. And in fact, if other tribes had problems, they'd go find Jack Fiddler and ask him to come. Hey, what do we do? Can you help us? And try and even in cases where people were in the beginning of a transition saying, Pour, you need to pour bear fat down their throat. You need to isolate them before they get to this uh, what uh, the situation where they're pulling a swift runner and we're, you know, succumbing mm -hmm. to a psychosis or something that causes them to kill their family. But yeah, it's this interesting question of what law should govern. 
depending it really on where is. somebody is and why. And, yeah. And obviously like a sticky situation to even discuss. And I feel yeah. as a white woman that I don't have, uh, I'm not the one to, you know, have a huge opinion on it or be talking about it, but it it's just something interesting to think about. Well, I think it is important that because you've pointed it out, we're both white women, but I'm not a member of any of these tribes, but I give a shit about what, and we both give a shit mm-hmm. about what happens to their tribes and about what has happened. And I think the more all of us say, I'm not part of that affinity group, but I'm interested in sharing the story to the extent I can and learning how much I can. Hopefully that helps a little bit more of an understanding. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's what I'm trying to say. I'm not For saying, sure. well, I'm not part of them, so it doesn't really matter No, I to didn't me. think you were at all. I'm saying- I am not part of that. So it's, I'm not the one that should be making any final decisions because who am I? Right. I'm always like, nobody asked, nobody asked any members of this tribe what kind of law they wanted. You just kind of came in and said, well, get on the back of the horse. We're taking you into town. Mm -hmm. The term Wendigo psychosis was first used in the Palatine Dictionary, which was used by the Algonquian tribe, according to the medical journal, Current Problems in Psychiatry. According to the American Psychology Association, it is a severe culture-bound syndrome occurring among northern Algonquin Indians living in Canada and the northeastern United States. The syndrome is characterized by delusions of becoming possessed by a flesh-eating monster, the Wendigo, and is manifested in symptoms including depression, violence, a compulsive desire for human flesh, and sometimes actual cannibalism. The syndrome became more widely known in the 1960s with the publication of Professor Morton Tyker's report that included 70 cases of the disease. Tyker was criticized for his one-sided and colonialist view of the subjects of the study, as well as poor epidemiological evidence. And it was interesting to see this, you know, 70-person study in culture-bound. I had never heard of this. I did not study psychology, but a syndrome that only occurs just in one single culture. I don't know that this is what's happening, but it reminds me of instances we've covered of mass hysteria. Yeah, and I think this is instead of it, because it doesn't usually happen in mass numbers, but it happens one off. But you're right of having heard of it. And Mm -hmm. because it is cultural, you've heard of it in your culture, which it was interesting to read articles in these psychiatry journals and psychology journals throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s. And this turn in the 80s where the journal at the early 80s, there were some journal articles that said, oh, it's all made up. This is a fake thing. This isn't a real disease. And then in the, when ethnographers and ethnohistorians and more anthropologists looked into it and said, you can't completely discount the cultural context around the psychological disorder. That's just silly. And it's not true. You're not truly trying to study this. You're trying to write it off as something you already know. So when you, I, I thought it was fascinating when you put it alongside the cases of the Wendigo psychosis and their scenario having to do with, I was told in a dream, like Swift Runner said, I was told in a dream. And one of the articles argued that the Algonquian people have these doctrines of dreaming and predestination. And from an early age, that's really uh, put on you as it's very important to listen to your dreams. And there's nothing wrong with that because culturally that's part of their heritage. But that if you as a psychologist get somebody who said, hey, this happened in my dream and so I followed it and you go, well, that's stupid, then you're an awful psychologist because Mm -hmm. you didn't ask, well, what made you follow the dream? Oh, well, my entire upbringing and my raising and then this is where I deviated from the culture into psychology or, you know, psychological disorder. But I think there was an issue from like the 60s to about the early 80s of going, oh, well, it's, you know, it's just this thing that this one single group has, which is true, but then, oh, well, this one single group's just making it up. And it's like, no, there are a lot of factors at play, and it might be a traditional psychosis coupled with something that's just completely unique to them. It is fascinating to think about. The Wendigo legend served an important purpose, to keep members of a community together during incredibly harsh winters. Separating oneself from the group failing to store food for winter, and resorting to cannibalism were all undesirable behaviors. Similarly, the frightening tale prevented children from wandering off on their own, fearing they might be devoured by a wendigo if they strayed too far. Historian and professor Carolyn Pedrechny posited that legends like the wendigo served as a way to scare adults into continuing to participate in human society and following social rules to ensure their safety. Dr. Emily Zarka of Monstrum called the Wendigo legend, 
A warning about what could happen when an individual forgoes the collective for their own survival, and above all, a lesson in excess and a manifestation of the anxieties that emerge in the harsh realities of winter and how to survive it. So what do we think? Yeah, when you keep the context, it's even scarier of... It's not just a weird mythical creature in the woods. It is a real scenario that could take over you when you do succumb to greed and hunger. But what if it's not just a a tale that it's the the windigos are in the woods? What I mean, I don't know that they're not. I, I feel like they are. It's it's. I think it's like the the white person's way to explain away things like this in a way that does make mm-hmm. sense. I, you know, I'm a very science-minded, pragmatic person, so all of this makes sense. But I think it's also very dismissive and mm-hmm. arrogant to go in and say, well, that's what's going on here. Y'all's beliefs are just manifestations of your mental health problems. Instead mm-hmm. of really trying to understand how this came to be, is this really happening? Like, you know what I mean? Like, right. you don't, we don't know everything. No one knows everything. So it would be the same as if you, if you went into, um, you know, we're, we're counseling a person of faith that mm-hmm. their whole identity and life was wrapped up in their faith. And you're like, well, you know, God isn't real. So really all of this is cut stupid and you should just cut it, just knock it off. Mm-hmm. You know, you would never say that. Right. It makes you think of the Pope's exorcist episode we did where, you know, you're working with people who really say, I am possessed. I need to work with a priest. And it's like, who am I to say that you're not possessed and that you need to work with a priest just like this? Who's to say that any of the Wendigo hunters weren't wrong? Like I said, it's not like their tribe, their fellow tribe members went externally and said, somebody, please help us. They said, we're good. This person helps us. And what helps is to stay with the group. And I think that those type of legends are based on something like whether it's people back in, you know, way, way, way back in the, before the fur trappers ever started writing about this, before anybody landed on any shore, that when things got really cold, people did turn. And this this folklore develops as a way to, we got to stick together. Mm-hmm. We're more, absolutely, we're safer when we're together. We're safer when we think about storing food for the winter. We're safer when we don't turn on each other when things get really fucking bad. There's a reason for that story, whether it's because it was a, 30 foot creature in the woods with red eyes or just a couple of fellow tribesmen that went off and turned feral because Mm -hmm. they, they did turn their back on the group. It's rooted in something. And like you said, who am I to say? No, no, I agree. It is. There's something out in the woods, whether it's still out there. Maybe we don't go way into the deep, deep cold up there. I don't, (laughs) I sure don't. I hope not. I'm sure that there were many instances of people, you know, uh, essentially cabin fever and you are starving and it becomes a fight or flight type of situation. I mean, it's happened in other cultures too. We've all seen the movie Alive. You know, I mean, desperate times sometimes call for the most desperate of measures that nobody wants, but for whatever reason, they feel like it's the only solution. So if, if, this if these tribes know that like this is a possibility we've seen it happen to our fellow tribesmen so we all do need to stay together make sure we're all looking out for each other keep the kids in don't let the kids wander into the forest so yeah it's just the way these i think the tales help keep you safe but even if it's not a 15 foot you know monster i like i said the biggest monster of all is man so right Something, regardless of why the story came to be, if it protects people from being devoured by one of their own or a 15 foot beast in the woods, then, you know, let, let the, let the legend stay and don't come in and try and just turn swing, just come in, swing in your white dick all over the place. Get it (laughs) out of there. Turn it into something cheesy. Because, I mean, it when you strip away the whole, like, well, why should we fear the Wendigo? It is. It's just a cheesy monster in the woods. But when you talk about why it's so scary is because 
we could become that. And I don't mean in a sense of Wendigo psychosis, but when you aren't satiated, when you aren't happy with what you have, and it has to be more, 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 me, 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 me. I don't care about the community. I don't care about the collective. I have to survive. What does that turn you into when you are willing to step on or eat your fellow human? Mm -hmm. It is, I think, a lesson that we could all take into consideration of excess and being uh, a, I'm this maverick on my own. I don't need anybody. Well, eventually things get dire and what happens, you might not need anybody, but then you start eating other, you know, you start to devour those who would normally support you or have been on your side. So it's a, it's a valuable one. Even if it's not a human, the cannibal right. cannibalization of resources right. and the planet mm-hmm. play into it as well. Yeah, I think that that keeping that in mind and what Fessenden said of like it's the this global warming and climate change being the last vestige of Wendigoism of like we're eating, consuming, consuming, building, expanding, and we have to get we have to go to Mars, we have to go here, we have to get bigger and bigger and bigger instead of. And while doing that, what do you turn into when you forego the collective and leave everybody behind? Mm-hmm. Instead of Damn. taking care of your fellow human and your own group, you're just thinking about yourself. And then you become a cold, icy beast with a heart of ice. That can be only be melted and turned into, I guess, a puddle of nothing. So it doesn't end fat. well. Right, but in none of in none of the Wendigo tales does it end well for the Wendigo. It doesn't. No. Oh, and then the Wendigo owned the whole world and was happy, and ate the whole world and was happy. It's like no, if you eat the whole world, you'll still starve because there's nothing left to eat. What are you going to start eating? The stars, space is nothing. So at some point, you'll eat, eat everything that matters. When you want everything, your hunger is insatiable. Damn, you know, mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true though. You're right. <laughs> Sinisterhood, we'll be right back. Well, uh, Heather, for people that want to be a part of a community and help those around them, I think you have something coming up this Saturday, right? What a wonderful segue. Normally, this is when we have our live performances uh, announcements here at the end of the show before we sign off, but uh, and it's not really a performance. I am leading a daily journaling workshop for the organization Fearless Dallas, which is a community of women plus helping other women uh, establish themselves in careers and life changes, transitioning from foster care into the workforce, transitioning from one career to the other. So there's a lot of different uh, workshops on this Saturday, September 9th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Dallas Public Library. And I am one of many uh, other amazing workshops that are beyond Uh, confronting trauma, taking care of your health, building resiliency in troubling times. And mine is utilizing writing and a daily journaling habit to uh, become more fearless in this world and and seek out community and networking. So Dallas Public Library, Saturday, September 9th from 9am to 1pm. And you can go to uh, go to my Instagram, you can find a link there because I can't tell you fearlessdallas.com or go to Instagram at Heather versus the world, you can find it all on there. If you like our free episodes, you'll love our Patreon bonus content. You can join for free to see what we're up to next or dive into over 500 hours of bonus content. We've recently put up two minisodes, one on the dress that we all remember from back in the day. Was it blue and black? Was it white and gold? There's a recent tragedy that has come out about uh, the people that were involved with that. And then we also have the 2007 Washington phone stalker case that is very haunting that I we recently lemons. put up. To- <laughs> no, thank you. It's very creepy. And uh, and we also have uh, Judge Christie and Am I the Asshole that are new. They've been a uh, dear sinister that have been sparking lots of conversations mm-hmm. about like, what would you do in this situation? So we love, I like when we do a BOCO and then that's what we call bonus content behind the scenes. <laughs> Uh, this is Tommy original, but I like when we do something like that. And then it does spark those type of conversations. One of our listeners was even on TikTok and was, had a whole TikTok about, I was listening to Sinisterhood and what do you think about thank you cards? And we're having people weigh in. So I like all these conversations. Come nice. be part of the conversation on Patreon. Yeah, there have been, I was looking at Patreon today and the comments on all the posts. I mean, there's, you know, popping off 50, 60 comments and it's all what I love about our listeners is 
everyone is always so respectful. Even if you have a different opinion, everyone really comes from a place of understanding and like talking things through instead of just Mm -hmm. being like, shut up, you fucking idiot. So that's always appreciated. (laughs) I like it. An open mind and an open heart. We do have filthy mouths for sure. (laughs) But we're not dicks to each other. Well, and for recent patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show and make sure to stick around after our sign off so you can hear a shout out. You can also head to Sinisterhood.com and click shop on the top banner to check out all types of Sinisterhood merch. It is getting cold out there. So you want to head over there. You can get a hoodie. We got a pullover, like a crew neck sweatshirt. And your usual, there's beanies. Mugs for your coffee and cocoa. Yeah, it's time to get cozy with a Sinisterhood mug. Or if it's 150 degrees where you're at, like it is here, we also have water bottles and stuff. (laughs) You can stay hydrated, but go to Sinisterhood.com and click shop on the top banner and get your holiday shopping done early. While you're there, you can also review the show, follow us on socials, and check out the episode description for more fun like topic-based playlists and links to live show tickets or link to the Fearless event this Saturday. I will add it to that. Thank you for the reminder. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod. You can like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. You can check out full episodes of the show on YouTube at Sinisterhood Podcast. Be sure to follow us on TikTok at Sinisterhood Podcast and schedule your custom video shout out on Cameo.com and search Sinisterhood. You can ask us to say happy birthday, happy anniversary, I love you, whatever you want. We want to deliver that message for you. Just let us know in the little box if it's, is it a Judge Christie ruling? Do you want to meet McGruff? I don't know. Say it in the box and we'll do it. Cameo.com and search Sinisterhood. Where are you at online, Christy? I am on Instagram at Christy and Wallace and TikTok at Christy or GTFO. Heather? I am at Heather versus the world pretty much everywhere. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts. B. Corey Hay. Erica Carrington. Katrina Scott. Molly Props. Courtney Cole. Alyssa Perry. Ashley Johnson. Sarah Husted. Denise Zambuchetto. Jennifer Wilking. Stephanie Hasinski. Rhonda Daniels. Angela. Nick Bosta. Kate Muller. Samantha McQueen. Rachel Pierce Young. And Jennifer Betancourt. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do this without you. We hope we pronounced all your names correctly. We sincerely, sincerely appreciate all your love and support. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Mwahaha. Sinister Hood.